0: The scripture reading today comes from Mark 14, uh, verses 26 to 50. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he again came to to find them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled.
1: One of my favorite movies that was made uh, years ago was a movie called uh, The Green Mile. Maybe you've seen it before. It was a Tom Hanks movie and... Uh, It followed a couple of inmates in a prison that were living on the Green Mile, meaning that uh, within a certain measure of time, they would be executed for their crimes. And there's sweet moments to the movie, there's funny moments to the movie, but as the movie continues on, it just gets more and more intense. The The tension builds, the urgency in the movie builds because the inmates know what is coming. Well, if you've been with us the past week through the Lenten season, you'll know we've been looking at this last week of Jesus Christ, and as we've gone throughout the last week of Jesus' life, the tension continues to build up until the point in which we just read where Jesus is arrested. Before we look at this passage, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the chance to worship, to do this thing that uh, you designed us to do, uh, to live in worship of you. We pray that as we consider this morning, uh, this passage, as we consider the last weeks of your life, this Thursday uh, in which you were arrested, Father, we would see maybe for the first time or maybe uh, with fresh eyes uh, the great sacrifice that you made on our behalf. May we all leave with a greater sense of awe with what you've done and affection because of how much you loved us. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. As I really reflected on this story this week, it was a challenge to think about what direction to go in for a sermon of a passage like this. And there are so many layers that we could think about this passage. But in the end, I decided to settle really on three different angles of three different perspectives on what's exactly going on in this passage. And the first thing the first thing that we must really notice about this passage is the sting of betrayal verse forty five says this, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, "Rabbi," and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. If you were with us, or if you 've read this passage before you 'll remember that on Wednesday uh, Jesus was uh, in the home uh, of a friend, and a woman came up to him, a woman named Mary, and she had an alabaster flask of ointment, this very costly ointment and she uniquely knew what was going to happen to Jesus that week. So she broke this alabaster flask of ointment over Jesus and anointed him for his death. Everybody else that looked on had a real problem with what she had done. They, they saw the great cost of this ointment and they thought, what a waste. But the one who was most offended, the passage tells us, was Judas. And at that moment when he saw this incredible act of love, he realized that he was going to be the one to betray Jesus. He would be the the inside man that the chief priests were looking for in order to get to Jesus. And, And all it cost was 30 pieces of silver for Judas to turn on Jesus. He would just the next day slip out of the meal, that last supper meal, once he had discovered where Jesus was going to spend the night. And he went to the chief priest's. And he would return later that evening with those soldiers. He instructed them that the one that he would kiss would be the one that they were to arrest. And by the end, the betrayal was complete. The painting by Caravaggio called The Taking of the Christ depicts this, and it's hanging in the National Galleria in Dublin. And the painting depicts Judas uh, kissing Jesus. And, and as he's kissing Jesus, one of the, the soldiers' arm reaches across the both of them in order to grab Jesus and arrested him. And what's interesting about the painting is that the, the, shoulder, the soldier's arm becomes the center point of this painting. And it's intentionally reflective. The metal on the shoulder's shoulder blade, or the soldier's shoulder blade, is intentionally reflective, and many believe that this was the intent of the artist to make the metal of the soldier's arm appear like a mirror." One person wrote this about the painting: "The artist is inviting his viewers to see themselves reflected in the behavior of Judas. Through their own acts of betrayal of Jesus. That is, through their sin. Now it's easy for all of us to look on this passage and condemn Judas for his, his betrayal. We'll call it the, the capital B betrayal of Jesus. But it's also appropriate for all of us to be reminded that each sin is a betrayal. Maybe we can call it a lowercase b betrayal. Betrayal. But each sin that we commit betrays the grace and the will of God our Father. Each sin we commit is an assertion of our own will and a rejection of God's will. While it may be hard for us to see ourselves in the act of betrayal on Judas's part, It's easy to see ourselves on really the second angle of this passage that I would like us to look at, and that is the scattering of Jesus' friends. We see the the sting of betrayal, and we see the scattering of friends. Our passage opens in, in verse 27, saying this, And Jesus said to them, all of his followers, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter." And then, just a few verses later, at the end of our passage, in verse 50, it says this And they all left him and fled. I don't know about you, but whenever I I read the Gospels, I'm always struck by Peter's character in the Gospels. There seems to be this kind of impetuous, lovable egotism to Peter. Maybe it's because I often see myself in Peter and the way he responded to Jesus and the way he acted. And yet Jesus is is so loving and patient with Peter. I often think of Jesus, he he must be thinking, Peter, I love you, but you're just such a moron. Of course, Jesus probably wasn't thinking that. I don't want to put words in Jesus' mind, but that's certainly what I would have thought if I were Jesus about Peter. And the passage tells us that after dinner, they are are walking to the, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives and this, of course, we know is, is, is located just on the east side of Jerusalem, just outside of the city walls. And, and most likely they had plans to sleep there that night. Because of Passover and so many crowds in Jerusalem, people would find gardens and places just to sleep for the night. And on the way, as Jesus was walking to this garden uh, and his followers were all around him, Jesus tells them that they all will scatter. Jesus quotes a passage when he says this from Zechariah 13.7. and When Peter hears it, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He doesn't want to hear about it. And he swears to Jesus that I will never fall away, Jesus. I will stay loyal to you. I will remain loyal to the cause. And of course we know what happens with Peter. I read an article this week that, that told about a story about a girl... Uh, who was on a bridge, and she decided to to take a selfie. And as she was taking the selfie, she kept backing up and fell off the bridge. Of course, she was okay, but a lot of people uh, took her story in in some ways as a parable. As a parable, that in some ways we can become so self focused and self absorbed that it can be our undoing. And that was certainly true of Peter in this passage. Peter, in an impetuous way, relied on his own power and his competitive faithfulness. He focused only on what he perceived to be his strength and everyone else's weakness around him. And of course, Jesus tells Peter that he will indeed deny him. And of course, by the next morning, everything that Jesus had said became true. Once they arrive in the garden, Jesus is, is clearly in distress. He has, he, in, in his distress, he, he, he returns to his disciples repeatedly back and forth from prayer, only to find that they are asleep. They can't maintain watch. They can't stay awake for him. And then, of course, when the soldiers arrive, impetuous Peter strikes again. This time he strikes literally by cutting off the ear of one of the soldiers. But in the end, all of Jesus' disciples flee. After three years, this was the moment that had become too much for all of them. They didn't understand Jesus' words in Matthew 16 when he said, "'If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross,' and follow me. This is what Jesus had been saying from the very beginning, but when the going got tough, when following Jesus was no longer the easy thing, they all ran away. And friends, in many ways, we can be just like Jesus's followers. They loved the miracles. They loved the the free food that came from the feeding of the 5,000. They loved the spectacle of of Jesus' healing. They loved the theology theology of Jesus, the, the interesting give and take about the true nature of the kingdom. But when the soldiers arrived, they all bolted. As soon as this began to cost something, they were all gone. Friends, you and I often want the benefits of the kingdom without the cost of the kingdom. We want easy discipleship. We want to follow Jesus as long as the path is easy and it doesn't subvert our own ambitions for our lives. We don't want to follow Jesus into the risky and the costly places. We'd rather settle for a very safe and comfortable faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who who died in his attempt to follow Jesus into difficult places, wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that denying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Friends, this is what it means to follow Jesus, to die to ourselves, to live to him, to follow him into costly and risky places. But, friends, Jesus never calls us to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. Of course, he walked the costly and the risky road before us. So finally, we see the last angle. We see the anguish of a Savior. Verse 34, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. I think what we begin to see in Jesus here is a profound loneliness. You see, grief, anybody who's been through grief knows that grief has a very isolating effect on those that are suffering through it. We've all been there before, we all know the well-meaning people that come to us and say, oh, I know exactly what you're going through, and of course they don't, right? Only you know what you are going through in that moment, and it often feels very isolating. At first, Jesus' followers can't even stay awake, even though Jesus is in obvious grief. They were absolutely numb to the pain that he was going through and experienced. And then when the soldiers arrive, they scatter, they run away. We'll never see them again throughout the entire passion narrative, perhaps except for John. Jesus had spent three years of his life with these men. He ate with them. He slept with them. He laughed with them. He journeyed with them. Three years of life together with them. But Jesus would need to, walk, need to walk the rest of this road alone. Frederick L. Knowles' poem, Grief and Joy, says it well. Joy is a partnership. Grief weeps alone. Many guests had Cana, Gethsemane, had one. But I think there was another sort of loneliness that Jesus began to feel in these moments. Because in these moments he may have begun to feel forsaken by God, his Father. And this gets us really to the second thing that we see in the midst of Jesus's anguish, we begin to see the mystery of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus and I want to be very careful here when we talk about this because there's so much we don't understand about what is going on here. It is shrouded in so much mystery. I don't think we'll ever know exactly the theological ins and outs of what is going on in the garden. But what we do know is that because of Jesus' divinity, he had foreknowledge about what was going to happen. Mark is very careful to demonstrate this foreknowledge all throughout his gospel. You see, you and I don't have foreknowledge. We don't know what is coming down the road, and sometimes that ignorance is blissful. Other times it's excruciating, not knowing what is about to happen. But Jesus knew all of it. He knew everything that was about to come, and that foreknowledge mixed with his humanity created An incredibly intense emotional anguish. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Mark tells us that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. Matthew tells us that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. Luke says that being in anguish he prayed more and more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Here is God captured by anguish and distress and sorrow and trouble. And yet, in the context of such emotional distress, we see perfect submission to the Father's will in Jesus. Jesus asks God the Father if there's another way, and the Father answers no. He even uses the the familiar and intimate term, Abba, Father, or Daddy, please. He asks the Father if the cup of wrath could be avoided, and the answer is no. There is no other way. The cross would have to be accomplished, and Jesus perfectly submits to his Father's will. Friends, God calls you and I, to this same sort of submission. When we choose to follow Jesus, it means that our wills become subordinate to God's plan for us. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Sometimes the will of God calls us into risky places. Sometimes it calls us into costly places. Sometimes it calls us into painful places. I read this week an account of uh, one great figure in church history. His name was Martin Luther. And uh, we often know of his theological teachings and the great things that he did in church history. But uh, this was a biography about uh, his family life, his interaction with his wife and, uh, and his kids, and I read in there the story about the death of uh, his 13-year-old daughter. Her name was Magdalena. And the account goes like this. As he, Luther, sat by his dying 13-year-old daughter, Luther vacillated one moment surrendering to God's will and the next moment begging for his mercy. I love her very much, he prayed, but if it is thy will to take her, dear God, I shall be glad to know that she is with thee. Later, weeping inconsolably at Magdalena's bedside, he admitted, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I love her very much. I'm angry at myself that I'm unable to rejoice from my heart and be thankful to God. He acknowledged that he tried to sing a little and offer thanks to God, though the effort felt forced. He wrote, I'd like to keep my dear daughter because I love her very much. If only the Lord God would let me. Luther lamented, however, his will be done. Truly nothing better can happen to her. Nothing better. And just days later, his 13-year-old daughter died in his arms. As I thought about this, I thought, what was it that gave... Luther such strength in the face of his daughter's death? What helped him to endure in the face of such tragedy? When I thought about it, I could only come back to the Garden of Gethsemane because what gave Luther strength in that moment was the fact that he worshiped a God who had endured the Garden of Gethsemane. See, Jesus persevered and endured because of the humble submission to the Father's will. But friends, I think there was another reason that he persevered in the garden beyond just submitting to his Father's will. There was something more here than just grinning and bear it. And the book of Hebrews tells us what it is. It says in chapter 12, "...to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith," who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Friends, it was joy that made him walk down this road. It was joy in seeing the plan of redemption accomplished. It was joy in making your salvation possible. Because of great love for you. And joy in a restored relationship with you. That Christ endured the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath because of his great love for you. And the joy of being in relationship with you. Sin entered the world in a garden. Redemption came because Jesus left the garden. Let's pray.